Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Victoria Massey. Hi, Victoria. Hi, Bernice. Uh, Thank you so much for having me tonight. Well, glad that you were able to join and co-host. Well, for those of you who don't know Victoria, Victoria Massey is a doctoral candidate in subcultural anthropology with a designated emphasis in science and technology studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Her research focuses on the ties between ancestry and DNA as claims to identity are made by and on behalf of African Americans in the United States and in Cameroon. Her research has received funding from the National Science Foundation as well as the University of California Center for New Racial Studies and the University of California Berkeley Center for African Studies. Now, we want to just welcome everybody to research at the National Archives and beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Now, if you are in the chat room and you are a guest and you want to participate in the chat, just sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. The lines will be open in the second half of the show so that those of you who just have to ask that question or make a comment, you can call in and talk. This show tonight will focus on DNA and genealogy. And before I introduce my guests, this is not the first show I've had. Actually, I've had five shows on various aspects of DNA and genealogy and encourage you to review all of the archive shows on this topic. Well, tonight's show is about a new book, Next Gen Genealogy, The DNA Connection. Okay, everybody, what do you know about DNA? Have you had your DNA tested and still have questions about your results? Well, David R. O'Dowell will help you answer some of these questions that are addressed in his new book, Next Gen Genealogy, The DNA Connection. David was an academic librarian for 35 years, and he has two degrees, one in, two in history and two degrees in library science. Wow, Dave. 
He is an ethicist, lecturer, and also the author of Crash Course in Genealogy. He formerly taught genealogy research and ethics in the information age at Cuesta College and chaired the Genealogy Committee and the Committee on Professional Ethics of the American Library Association. He blogs on genealogical topics as on, you know, Dr. Diggs up ancestors at http blog.ddow.com. And he coordinates two surname and one haplogroup DNA research projects. So I'm just so excited to have him here tonight. So let me give a warm welcome to David Dow to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for coming on. You know, we just want to talk about DNA. It's it's kind of like the buzz. I mean, it's it's the tool <laughs> that's out there that people want to know more about. But first of all, why don't you tell us how did you get involved in genetics genealogy? Well, I've been involved in what I would call the old-fashioned genealogy or 20th century genealogy since the 60s and doing research in my family. And in 2004, I, I and a colleague who had been exchanging uh, information on our families for about 15 years at that time, decided we wanted to confirm that we were headed in the right track. We both had the same surname, and we were both convinced that if one or the other of us could just push our family uh, pedigree chart back one more generation, we would intersect the other one. So we mm -hmm. decided we would take a DNA test, a Y chromosome DNA test, to confirm that. And we got a big surprise. Our line, uh, paternal lines had not intersected in the last probably 3,500 years. And so there was no point in us researching around the uh, Hampton Roads area of Virginia to find that common ancestor or, you know, lots of families have this uh, myth of the two brothers or the four brothers that came across the ocean and then they got to, uh, this side of the ocean and one brother went north and one went west and something like that. And we thought mm -hmm. maybe something like that had happened in our family, but that turned out not to be the case at all. We have two separate groups who took our surname at two different times and where our lines would intersect uh, genetically was long before surnames were in use. Hmm. Okay. So given that information, th I mean, where did you take it? Well, then we were able to organized two different groups of dowels with our surname and to help uh, others assign themselves to one or the other or maybe neither of those two larger groups. But mm -hmm. uh, with, with my own uh, group, which we call the Maryland dowels because our first known ancestor showed up in uh, 1690 in, in Southern Maryland, we have had enough uh, 
probably almost two dozen descendants of his that are currently living do a DNA test, and we can sort of recreate what our founder's DNA might have been over 111 chromosome uh, markers to uh, hopefully bridge the ocean to Europe, but so far it hasn't worked. But then we mm-hmm. also have this group of Virginia dowels that uh, have a large number of branches as well. So dowels that come along now, we try to help them get into the right grouping. Okay. Well, take us to the book now. Now, why did you decide that it was time for you to publish a book, Next Gen Genealogy to DNA Connection? Well, back about three or four years ago, I wrote a book for basically for librarians to help genealogists to come into their libraries with their family history research. And one chapter in there was on DNA. And that might have been about as much as I knew how how to write about it that at the time I wrote that book. But there were a lot of people interested in that and lots of uh, new people coming into genetic genealogy all the time. And of the books that had been written, there were some very good books that were written back in... 2005, 2006, and then there really hadn't been much of anything until uh-huh. Emily's book came along about a year ago. Right, and, uh, right. So uh, my purpose was twofold. There, as far as I'm concerned, two major skill sets in becoming a gen- genetic genealogist. One is to understand how de- different parts of our DNA is passed down through the generations. And the other part is to just understand the various test results that we get back. So if you can master those two skill sets, you're well on your way. That's right. So So I'm going to turn it over to Victoria. You have uh, some questions you want to start off with? Yeah. So, David, again, um, I guess so... If we're trying to kind of set the ground for, you know, doing this work on genetic genealogy, I was wondering if you could just say a bit about the differences between the tests, for instance, like that with, like, what is the difference between, like, mitochondrial DNA, um, Y-DNA, autosomal DNA, and the X factor? Um, Yeah. Okay. I'm going to use an analogy of hunting weapons here. I think most of us sort of understand the basic difference between, say, a high-powered rifle and a shotgun. If yes. you have a if you have a high-powered rifle, it shoots a single projectile, but it goes up for a long distance. While on the other hand, if you have a shotgun, the spray pattern of the buckshot will diverge out and cover a lot of area in width, but it won't penetrate very far. Mm-hmm. So a, cup, a couple of the Y-DNA and the mitochondrial DNA, I'll uh, liken to the rifle, because these go down a single line in your pedigree chart. The Y-DNA will go to up your father's, 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 father's line, almost infinitely back to a mythical person that we call uh, Y-chromosome Adam. So 
not quite the same as biblical Adam because we're not saying this is the first man, but he's the mm-hmm. first man that had had two sons who have had continuous descendants down through history to the current time. And so the Y chromosome test will point you back in that direction and show something about how your single line in your pedigree chart might have migrated around the world to where you came into being. On the other hand, the mitochondrial DNA, again, is a single line in your pedigree chart, but it's the opposite side of the pedigree chart where the mothers, 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 or sometimes I call the umbilical line, uh, goes back in time. And that also goes a long ways. Uh, The autosomal DNA is one that most people test these days. And there are three different testing companies that test that. Uh, Ancestry, Family Tree DNA, and 23andMe. That's uh, Family Tree DNA calls this their family finder. And that is what I call the shotgun approach because it goes up all of your pedigree lines, but only four or five generations with any uh, accuracy before it loses its oomph and its ability to help you with your genealogical research. X is perhaps a little bit more difficult. Maybe we'll have that for an honors course later, but uh, a uh, boy inherits X chromosome only from his mother and not from his father. So anywhere on your pedigree chart where there is a father passing DNA down to a son, that serves as a block to the flow down through time of X, of your X chromosome. It's, uh, girls get y, X chromosome from both parents. It's a little bit more difficult to uh, understand the inheritance pattern and also to interpret it. But uh, most people don't deal with that when they first get their test results, and maybe that's more of an advanced uh, study. Yes, you're right. A lot of people don't get that. Uh, So, Victoria, I'm just going to keep you on this this train of questioning. Okay. Um, And I guess, um, so... Yeah, thank you for your previous answer. I guess, like, I'm curious, just to add on to making sure we're all on the same page on what terms we're talking about for the interview, I was wondering if you could say a bit more on, like, what is a haplogroup? Um, Yeah. Okay, a haplogroup, in very simple terms, is like an ancient tribe of uh, people who share a common DNA pattern. One thing that's very confusing to uh, a lot of people when they first start looking at this is male haplogroups are entirely different than female haplogroups, and they could be given the same nomenclature. Like a haplogroup H for women would be very different than, say, a haplogroup H for men. And they're as uh, different as night and day or water and oil or anything of that nature. One thing I'd like to just maybe get into the conversation at this point 
and some people probably understand, most of your listeners may understand this already, but DNA is just one tool to study your family history. Uh, just like census records are one tool, property records are one tool, vital records are a tool. It's just one tool. It, it by itself is not going to give you uh, complete family history in any sense. That's right, but one of the things you're saying, though, it is a tool. It is a tool. It's a very important a one tool. and a very precise one if we interpret it correctly. That's right. It can help is, us to get is, to points in it. It can help us get the points in our family tree that maybe the documents w would not uh, or still don't exist that might help us get there. Well, what you saying that though? Uh, would you say that everyone should consider DNA testing? Well, it all depends on what your goals are. And tonight we're focusing on DNA testing for family history. Some people are interested in family in uh, DNA testing for health results, and that is exploding. In fact, it's. Uh, I've heard, had some information that tomorrow the White House may release a new initiative on uh, that will lead to increased uh, activity in the area of uh, personalized medicine based on DNA results, but that's uh, not particularly what we're focusing on tonight. The you should DNA test probably. I will say only if you have a particular goal you would like to achieve in your family history. I was talking to someone recently, and she said, well, you know, I've, I've been sort of disappointed in my DNA test. I got it back, and, and I'm not sure what it's telling me or why it's useful, but it's, mm -hmm. I think maybe it's because I didn't have a focus going in that I wanted to find out something about a particular uh, ancestor or part of my tree to see if a couple of people might be related as distant cousins or something of this nature and so may not have picked the right test to help them answer a question that they had. So yeah, there are a number yeah. of reasons why you might test. There are at least three that immediately occur to me. And one is to preserve the DNA of uh, a generation that I'm fast moving into the older generation in my family because particularly with autosomal DNA, half of that DNA disappears with each generation. It mm. does not yeah. continue on down to the present. So there are a couple of things that only the older generation can give us. And one is their particular DNA and also their oral histories that they have. And so if you're just into genealogy and, and just want to preserve things for however you or your cousins or family might want to use it later, document those family histories and oral histories and document the DNA of the older generation while they're still with us. Uh, that's just the preserver role. If you want to go a little bit farther, you can take the test. Some people do. They just want to find out a little bit about their ethnicity uh, and don't have a particular family history question other than that to deal with. They can do that. But most people want to do it to match 
with other people because a DNA results for the most part really aren't meaningful until you can compare them with the results of other people and to find out do you match or in the case of uh, my research partner from 2004 we didn't match and we needed to learn to quit beating our heads against a brick wall because there was not a common ancestor on the other side of that wall waiting for us uh, you can then use some of the tools Whichever company you test with, their database should become your best friend. And how you compare uh, your results with others that are in the database of that particular company. Or then, you, if you really are serious about being a genetic genealogist, then you'll have a hypothesis or a research question that you're trying to answer or to find out. I have a friend recently who... Uh, whose wife has a bunch of cousins of some sort or another, and they're not quite sure what the relationship of all these cousins are. And so there, several of them are testing, and they're just beginning to get the results back and trying to compare. Did they share a common great-grandparent? Did they share a pair of great-grandparents? Was they know that uh, they shared, I think, a, a maternal great-grandmother, but they're not sure which of her husbands some of them might have descended from. So that's their research question that they're trying to answer with this research. Yes, and well, then I, you... Go ahead. No, you go. No, I was just going to continue this, this train of thought. I mean, you're talking about, well, what is the research question, and can DNA help you? Are you saying, though, that they still should come up with the, the hypothesis of something so that they know exactly what direction they're going so that when they do take the DNA test, they have a reason for why they're taking that test? Sure, and and you may not be the person who should be tested. For instance, mm. uh, Cece Moore was a previous guest on your show. She yes. was originally going to be the co-author on this book, but she got so involved with um, Henry Louis Gates that she didn't have time to meet her deadlines and had to step aside. But I, recent, I originally got in touch with Cece because I had a ancestress, a sixth great-grandmother, who showed up at a church in Delaware in 1736. And the first record and, and the earliest record still that I can find on her is signing the marriage roster at, at the church when she married. And I was wondering, okay, this was in a community that was sort of downstream at that point from what had been New Sweden, a colony that lasted for a generation or two and that what is now Delaware, but uh, and she married a guy who was the grandson of an original immigrant from Sweden. But her name sort of phonetically sounded to me like it might be Welsh, and so I formulated the research question in this case: Was Marjorie Swedish or was she Welsh? And I looked at my tree and said, hmm. If my dad were still alive, his mitochondrial line 
would go right back to Margie. But he wasn't alive. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I thought about it and said, oh, I have a first cousin. She could test because she has a direct mitochondrial line back through her mother, my dad's sister, and then our paternal grandmother that would go straight back to Margie. So I convinced Ruth she should take a mitochondrial test. And when it came back, Cece was one of the people that that Ruth matched. And mm-hmm. including, but most of the people that we, both Cece and I were matching there, still live in Finland. So she wasn't really Swedish, although Sweden and Finland were one country at the time New Sweden was colonized. And I had to go back and do some more historical research at this point and found that uh, probably more than half of the colonists to New Sweden had actually been ethnically Finns. So it made perfect sense when I raised my level of historical knowledge about the time. But that's one case where I formulated a, a hypothesis and then tried to figure out who in my family could test to explore that. Yes, however, with the autosomal test, because, I mean, you're talking about the, was this an autosomal test that you are speaking of? No, this was a mitochondrial. Autosomal wouldn't have gone back that far. Yeah, what questions would a person uh, who has chosen to select an autosomal DNA test, what questions should they be looking for or trying to answer? Okay, that might be a good, uh, a lot of people who know nothing about their family background because they're adopted or for whatever reasons, don't know anything, take autosomal tests. And if they can find a fairly close cousin, say a second cousin, maybe even a third cousin or closer, who does know something about their family, then that will get them on their way. I had an experience a little over a year ago where I logged into one of my DNA accounts and had a message there. We think we have a first cousin match for you. And I said, hmm, I thought I knew all my first cousins. I've been researching this for almost half a century now. And so I looked at a pedigree chart that was posted by this gentleman. And there wasn't a anybody in there that I recognized at all. But I did start recognizing some of the locations. And I said, hmm, well, if there is, if this guy is closely related, it's on my mother's side of the family. And I already knew about 38 first cousins on my mother's side of the family because she had 13 siblings. And uh, so then I... Uh, started examining that, comparing it with a couple of other members of my mother's family who had tested, and it all starts was checking out that this gentleman was looking like he should be a first cousin to us or a first cousin once removed to another uh, person who was had been tested from that family. And mm-hmm. then we were trying to figure out, okay, how is he related to our family? So I got a couple of other cousins to first cousins to test, and we started eliminating various uh, uh, individuals. At first, based on one 
story that this gentleman had heard. And this is, we're talking about a gentleman who at this point was 81 years old uh, and had never known who his mother and father were. And he uh, had been told by one of his neighbors at one time, well, I think your father might have been one of those Adams boys that worked at that grocery store over in Breckenridge, which is about 15 or 20 miles from where he grew up. And he said, I think your mother might have been one of the young girls who also worked in that store. So I started off on the wrong premise that I, uh, violated one of my own rules that you, although you believe everything you hear in stories like that, you believe nothing you hear either until you can verify it. Mm-hmm. And started going, started going through, started going through my uncles. So, well, there are only four of them. I was able to fairly easily eliminate two of them by DNA samples of some of their descendants uh, that they could not have been the father of this new cousin. And I had identified a grandson of one of the, a third of the four brothers, but I hadn't arranged for him to take a test yet. And then one day I said, hmm, well, we pretty much got this uh, Jim's cousin taken care of. I mean, his uh, father taken care of. But what clues do we have that might help with the mother? And I looked at it, in this case, his X chromosome, the the one that I shied away from earlier, and I said, oh, my God, two men do not share that much X chromosome DNA unless their mothers are very closely related, like sisters. And so I had to redirect my thoughts that Jim was the offspring of one of my nine aunts, not one of my four uncles. Mm. Uh, So that turned our research around about 180 degrees all of a sudden. And we were finally able to figure out which one of the the ants it was. And uh, so you, the actual, uh, although we had sort of narrowed it down to two or three of the ants, the real clincher was a document that we were able to unearth when we could target it a little better. And uh, not... Although DNA got us close to it, it was not the last nail in the coffin, as they say. Right, right. Well, you know, there there is a question coming out of the chat room, and it's it's regarding matches. And so I I want to I want you to say something about matches, but I also want you to say something about the significance of segment size. And I hope I don't talk over folks who don't even know what I'm talking about. But the question out of the chat from Petrina, she's saying for a DNA matches, how does one determine how far back, meaning generations, is the common ancestor. In other words, if I and a DNA match share a common ancestor, how do we determine how far back this ancestor is? Well, at this, this is not uh, an exact science at this point, but, but we can get close. Uh, we, within two or three generations perhaps or so. But what I think we're talking about here must be an autosomal test because that's the only test I'm, well, X, 
chromosome to some extent, you deal with segment sizes. But most commonly, it's with the autosomal test. And basically, each individual inherits half of their autosomal DNA from each of their parents. In other words, you get 50% of it from your father, you get 50% from your mother. And uh, so uh, then if you go back another generation to grandparents, you get about 25% of your DNA from each ancestor, of each grandparent. That's not quite as precise. You will get 50% from each parent. But your parents sort of choose somewhat at random the part that they inherited from their parents to pass it on down to you. So the segments that you might get from a grandparent are going to be shorter. They're not going to be a segment of your entire DNA like what you got from your parents. And each generation back farther in time, as the uh, DNA is recombined and passed down another generation, it breaks into shorter and shorter segments. And so it's that's how the segment length uh, helps you know how far back in time the common ancestor that you might share with another uh, person who is living now and have been tested. I'm not sure whether that directly answered the question or not. but uh, uh, Well, if it doesn't, I hope that she will uh, say whether it answered her question or not. But there's also another issue, and that's who should be tested. If you test a brother and a sister, their results, especially with autosomal, may come out differently. So explain why the brother and the sister are not coming out with the identical results. Okay, and this is different from the Y chromosome. If two brothers take a Y chromosome test, we would normally expect it to be identical. There's Mm -hmm. a very slight possibility there might be a single mutation somewhere in that generation, but it's unlikely. The same would be true with your mitochondrial results. But with the autosomal, each birth event is a different event. And each parent chooses from what they got from their parents, the grandparents in this case, uh, somewhat at random, the what they pass on down to each child. And on average, siblings inherit only 50% of the same autosomal DNA uh, that any of their sibling, other siblings might. And so if if you can get some real advantage in testing, if you are, like in my case, my parents were both dead before I got very far into DNA, and I'm an only child, so I'm sort of shut off in, in a lot of ways here. But if say if I did have two siblings, my one of my siblings would probably overlap half of my autosomal DNA. And the third one, so if we were trying to recreate the total DNA that had been passed down by our parents, that uh, we will all probably match anybody that's close to us as second cousins or closer. But if you get back to third cousins, we any individual 
will only match about 90% of the potential matches in there that might legitimately be their third cousin. But if your sibling tests as well, that sibling may pick up half of that 10% that you didn't pick up. Or if you have a third sibling, it's uh, even more useful. If you go back another generation, back to fourth cousins, a... uh, you're only going to match about 50% of the legitimate cousins who might have tested in that database. But another sibling will have somewhat different results. It's A lot of this is random, at least in, in what we understand in genetics today, as to why a certain part of uh, our DNA or segments of it got passed down from one generation to another once you get back past your immediate parents. But uh, if you go back to fourth cousins, only 50% is are going to match. If, if you go back a generation before that, it's only going to be about 10%. But by the time you get back to fifth or sixth cousins, you have an awful lot of living fifth or sixth cousins that descended from those same ancestors because there were those ancestors have had many generations to populate the earth. And so you will get more and more cousins, but it's harder to figure out how you match and, and your segments are going to be very small at that point. Right. And in fact, there's another question uh, that's coming out of the chat and it says, well, what indicates of the uh, greater degree of relationship, a greater segment size or more of a percentage shared? Uh, different genetic genealogists will give you a different answer in that. Most of the companies try to come up with an algorithm that balances both of those results. Personally, I like to at least first look at the longest segment size and, and uh, take a look and see. Long segments could exist intact for several generations, but the probability of that is pretty small. And the smaller segments, unless they add up uh, to a pretty big uh, sum of Cinemorgans, which is the measuring device or one of the measuring devices for match length, uh, are less are harder to deal with, and I, I don't know. It's not an either or; it's somewhat both. My personal preference, as I said earlier, is to look for the longest single segment and to see what I can do with that because it's easier to see if you can find another individual or database that also matches that longer segment. And it may be uh, somewhat for my own ease rather than for any great scientific reason that I prefer the the longer segment. I just find it more useful and more workable to, to deal with them than lots of small segments and less you also are matching another individual on all those real small segments as well. Mm-hmm. And then when you talk about uh, cinnamorgans, what's the 
I, I would say the bottom line uh, Cinemorgan that states, yes, indeed, you are related. Well, Down it depends on... Three. <laughs> I, I, there's a general rule of thumb that some of us use that if you have a, a single segment of 10 Cinemorgans or longer, there's pretty much a, a, like a 99% chance that that's legitimate, that you do share a common ancestor. If you drop down to about seven centimorgans, it's only about 50-50 chance. And so by the time you get down to three, if it's there by itself, it could be just a coincidence or as, you know, sort of like static on the line. Uh, but if you have a, several of that length, it might start to be meaningful. But I hope that at least when you get started in your research, you have some that are longer than that to uh, work with and to uh, get somewhere. Once you're trying to fill in, you filled in. Some people have filled out in maps where they're trying to show where every single piece of their DNA may have come from and what ancestor. I don't know that anybody's been able to do that more than three or four generations back, but some are working on that. And at that point, if you're that deeply into it, a real small segment might turn out to be meaningful. But for most of us, it generally isn't. It generally it may isn't. just be, yeah, three would, there'd be a very high probability that that really if that's the largest segment that you have with another individual. It's, right. It's well, going to we're be going way to back. take a quick break, yes, and, and then come back and continue this discussion. Just a quick break, okay? Okay. All right, sounds good. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, with co-host Victoria Massey in the chat room. And you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an, an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded 
through Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Now, you have been listening to David Dow discussing next-gen genealogy, the DNA connection. Also, the the phone lines are open. So if you want to call in with a question, please call 464-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. Now, if I see you in the studio and you have a question, I'm going to call out your area code, and you will be live. I will tell you you are live. In the meantime, let's go back to some of these questions. Victoria? Yeah, so I guess to start us on this next part of the conversation, David, I'm curious if you could just talk about um, what does it mean to do, how are how are cousins determined um, when trying to do it the, with matching? Um, people, if you could just maybe talk about even from your own personal experience about how that's come up in your own work. Um. Well, cousins again are uh, basically come can be approximated at least through the an autosomal test because the autosomal test is really only good for close generations and, and working on things like relationships. And first cousins um, share about 12% of their DNA, 12.5% on average. And again, that's an average. Uh, first cousins, once removed, would do about six and a quarter percent. And second cousins, you're down to about 3%. And I calculated out something the other day of a six cousin, once removed, I have. And we would have just had a few ten thousandths of one percent of our autosomal DNA, but on our Y chromosome DNA, we have almost an exact match. So uh, it all depends on using the various tools, even within genetic genealogy and any knowledge of history that you have and of your family history in particular to bring all this together to determine the degree of cousins. And um, oh. go ahead. Okay. Now you you've you've mentioned, you know, how you determine cousins, but let's go back to autosomal tests and then describe to us, help us understand the pros and cons of each of the companies, because while we have been talking about matching and segment size, not all of the companies provide that information to us. So just help individuals understand the the three companies that offer autosomal tests and just give us brief pros and cons of each of the companies. Okay, before I do that, I'll take a very brief detour to say there's only one major U.S. DNA testing company that tests Y chromosome and mitochondrial, and that is Family Tree DNA. They do also offer an autosomal product that is called Family Finder. But if you do a test at Ancestry.com or 23andMe, you're doing an autosomal test because that's the only one that they offer. Uh, the uh, Ancestry.com and maybe what you were sort of referring to in your question, Bernice, uh, uses their collection of user-contributed pedigree charts 
to help with the matching process in addition to the, the amount of DNA that is matched. They don't report segment size like uh, Family Tree DNA or 23andMe does, but they will tell you if there is a uh, pedigree chart at Ancestry where it looks like there is a common ancestor. That happens to be the company where I found my new 81-year-old first cousin. He had tested at Ancestry, but uh, his pedigree chart that he had posted there was very elaborate, but it was all his adoptive family and not his biological family. So it turned out not to be particularly useful. Uh, in other cases, though, uh, what you really hope for if you're testing at Ancestry is to see what I call the shaky leaf or the little green leaf, because that implies that at least on paper, the Ancestry computers think they have matched a particular ancestor in your pedigree chart with one uh, of your matches pedigree chart. And if that happens, that uh, makes it fairly easy to figure it out. There are a couple of caveats, though. You know, uh, even though you may share an ancestor in a pedigree chart with this person you match, it's possible the segment of DNA that you matched on was from a completely different line. You may have multiple connections if you go back six, seven, eight generations or more, particularly if you're from a, a group where uh, they were in a fairly isolated area, say a mountain valley where they didn't get out much to find mates and uh, other kinds of things, religious taboos in marrying outside the, the clan or sect or whatever. And marrying cousins was not looked on with disfavor a few generations back. And in fact, in some cases, it may have been uh, looked on with favor, particularly if, if the family had any property that they wanted to keep within the family and not let get out from under their control. So there's um, that. Uh, 23andMe used to give medical information as well. Since mm -hmm. November of 2013, the Federal uh, uh, Food and Drug Administration has asked them to cease and desist on that. They are work working through a process, which I hope they can resolve soon so that they can get back into that as well. So 23andMe, gives some ancestral predictions, some matches uh, in terms of uh, autosomal segments and things of that nature. They offer some tools to look at on a uh, chromosome template to see whether uh, a particular match from one person also overlaps a match, potential match of another potential cousin and certain tools like that, family tree DNA, <coughs> excuse me, uh, gives 
those kinds of tools, at least in my opinion, unfortunately, ancestry relies only on the pedigree charts in addition to the actual amount of DNA matching. Now, there are ways, uh, uh, say, third-party sites like uh, GEDCOM, G-E-D-C-O-M, or excuse me, GEDmatch.com, G-E-D-M-A-T-C-H.com, where you can download your results from any of the three companies and upload them there yourself. And and if somebody has downloaded theirs from one of the companies and upload them there, you can compare them with a lot of different tools. My uh, new cousin that I've referred to a couple of times previously tested at Ancestry. Most of the rest of uh, my mother's family that is tested had done it at Family Tree DNA. So I got Jim to download his, moved them over to uh, Chad Match, and I moved some of the other cousins over there, and then we could compare them uh, there using third-party tools, not beyond what an individual testing company might offer. Some people, if you're not very computer literate, might be intimidated in trying to do that. Fortunately, I found an 81-year-old cousin who was very computer literate and could handle that quite nicely. Well, we've had we've had a, a there's a kind of conversation going on in the chat, and I just want to share this with you. Uh, it relates to sometimes matches that are at the fifth and sixth cousin level. Uh, they may not never know the fact that they may be matching an African-American, but that person may be 20% European, and neither would have any clue as to even how to figure out how they are related, yet they are definitely showing as matches. And this comes out, you know, when we see the whole ancestry composition, and you're not seeing uh, those of African descent that are 100% African unless they are from Africa. So how would you even come close to figuring out the common ancestor of the, the European match? On the European side or the African side, or does it matter? I mean, uh, it would be well. The 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 response is about the person of African descent that has twenty percent European in their ancestry, and they are well, matching. Actually, that's, Go sure. ahead. That that's quite common. Uh, none of us are, or very few of us, are quite as race, as ethnically pure as we may like to think we are sometimes or no matter what our ethnicity may be and and that is one of the surprising things that lots of people find uh i ran across a family of dowels in uh rowan county north carolina that which is a county that i had lots of ancestors living in back in the uh around 1800 and some of them were around there for another couple of generations or more and some I think still later before my own particular line migrated west um, in the 1830s but 
I came across an individual there who was a descendant of a enslaved man who had been at one time had been owned by a woman who was my first cousin about six times removed and they had taken the uh, descendants of this formerly enslaved individual had taken the name Dowell and still car- some of them still carry it and and I was very curious about this to see if uh, you know we've heard all, all kinds of stories about slave owners and slaves and uh, all of us, I think, have heard of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings and very similar stories. We were able to look at the ethnicity of some of the current living, uh, primarily African-American dolls in, Rowan, in this family in North Carolina and determined that they were very uh, mixed ethnicity, but that the Y chromosome line went straight back to Africa. So the, there was no, no, no one of my uh, ancestors was involved in, in uh, being connected with them. So though, although we carried the same name, we probably were not biologically related, just related by name. But the result mm-hmm. could have been very different, and in many cases it would be. Uh, yes, yes. And then, just as a curiosity, I uh, share a common New England ancestor with uh, President Obama. George W. Bush also descended from this same New England family. So there are all kinds of uh, various mixes of ethnicity in our country, and Sometimes we ignore that. Sometimes I, I find it very interesting and curious to try to sort out. But. Yeah. And then sometimes you just, just won't be able to figure it out. Uh, I'm just true. reading another comment for you uh, out of the chat. Uh, this individual states that I think that I found a clue with a European match. Her grandmother was raised in an orphanage and clearly passed for Caucasian before her adoption, I even found her in the census as mulatto. My next step is to order her records from the orphanage. So she's going to take it a, a step further just to see if she can get any additional information to determine yeah, the, how the th- uh, they are related. Yeah, the, ad- the adoption records are state and local matters. In some cases, the records are very easy to get. In other cases, they're almost impossible to get. And one of the problems is that there's a lot of even false documents where uh, completely new birth certificates were created with the adoptive parents being listed as the father and the mother. Oh, wow. And that's the one, and that's, those are the ones that were given to in the adopted children to take to school for their birth certificate and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so... You've got to be very careful when you look at at, uh, the birth records when you get an adoption to make sure that you're getting the biological family and not the adoptive family listed. But I would certainly encourage uh, the listener to go for it. So, but I guess, like on that 
on that point, it makes me kind of wonder about, um, and I'm sure other some of the people in our chat are thinking about this too when it comes to the research, you know, what kind of ethical considerations should people have, one, in trying to know certain information and also sharing it, especially when connecting with, like, say, their DNA cousins and all of that? What do you think are the ethical considerations people well, should have? One of one of my one of the chapters in my book is sort of addresses that as a general topic and saying, okay, new technologies come along, and we don't really have social norms developed to help us use them in a the most humane way in many cases, and DNA is just one of those. When the internet first came along, there was no particularly norm for what should be allowed or not allowed that way. And uh, all of us have to come to different to our own understanding of a balance of respecting our right to know, balancing that with other people's right to privacy and their right to, uh, well, let's just leave it at those two for now because those are, are biggies and all of us may not come to the same point and we need to learn to respect each other's decision in that regard i'm working with a uh, great aunt of my and my wife's family right now to try to uh, get her to do a dna test because i believe it would help us perhaps connect back to Europe in that case and she is very reluctant to do that and I have to uh, restrain my enthusiasm to some extent to say you know that's a legitimate decision if she's not comfortable doing it uh, that's her DNA I can do what I want to with mine and but uh, again if we're not willing to share this. Most of us who are really into genealogy do it because we want to share documentary information. We want to share our DNA information with those with whom we may be related. But not everyone is, uh, is into this for that reason. Uh, my and I have to tell myself my whole life, I was a special investigator in the Air Force, so I very much believe in the right to know or find out what I'm interested in. As a librarian, I, for 35 years, I tried to find out things and, and help other people learn to, to find information. But at the same time, the right to privacy is very important too. And we have to somehow respect each other and uh, uh, that's their right to privacy is in part and is my right to know. We just need to try to understand each other as best we can. Right, and sometimes your enthusiasm as a, as a genealogist kind of overcomes all thoughts of privacy when you just want to know and you just hope that the person that's matching you is willing willing to share, but then, as you said, you have to also respect uh, them if they choose to decline. 
uh, even sharing information as well as in one of the companies, the only way you can connect is to share genomes to even share the genome. So it does put you in a in a kind of emotional situation of is yep. this okay? Am I am I okay to to move on? Uh, do I continue to badger the person and to try to get them to give me more information? You know, it all also depends on you building up a trust with the other individual, and maybe not go for a home run the first time at bat and. Uh, Help them understand why you think it's important, and uh, they may decide that they would like to help find out more about the family and, and let them know what role they really play in that. But by the time they actually give the DNA, most people probably are willing to share at least some information. It's the ones that... Yeah probably have that elusive DNA that you think may uh, tie some of your other ones together. And it, it may be a generational thing, too. I think uh, the young people that have grown up with Facebook and all this kind of thing, hey, you know, I, I saw a cartoon one time about a detective that was interrogating an individual in, in the police station. And the detective just turned to him and said, hey, I don't even need for you to open your mouth. There's more than enough information on your Facebook page to convict you. So I think oh, if wow. we've grown up in, mm. in, you know, in that, this was a cartoon, but I think you can, you know, some it gets to the point, people yeah. that you've seen on Facebook where people that have grown up with that kind of social media tend to be willing to share things we just assume they not share some days, but... Uh, uh, the older generation who may have, in some cases, the most valuable DNA for our projects didn't grow up in that kind of an environment, and we have to respect that as well. Yes, yes, you're right, you're right. Well, please provide us, because I know people are in the in the chat, and some are thinking about testing. Others have already tested. So what is or is there a simple blueprint for analyzing your results and so that people don't think, well, okay, I've taken my test, but there's some magical definitive answer now. Boom, I know who my cousin is. I mean, does it, it just doesn't work like that, though, right? <laughs> well, occasionally, but not, not very often. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so is there a simple blueprint? that people could follow, at least how do they probably go about the, Well, there's probably an evolving one that you may, even if you have formulated a question and you were fortunate enough to get an answer to it, that probably doesn't end things. Denise, I know you've done enough genealogy and most of your listeners probably have as well to know that there ain't no such thing as a done genealogy. If mm -hmm. you are able to break through and in identify an ancestor one generation farther back, that just doubles the possibilities of doing research because then you have a, a maternal line and a paternal line for the individual you just identified to carry forward. And so uh, 
if you start out, and a lot of people will just start out interested in their ethnicity and see what, how many, uh, what percentage of my genome came from sub-Saharan Africa, what percentage of it came from Asia, what percent of it came from Europe, uh, Native American or whatever. And that might be all their interest, but when they get that result back and look at it, they probably look at something else. There's there's no real blueprint where one size fits all here. We can all have uh, our own goals and uh, go at them, but I think the more you get into it, you'll say, oh, well, gee, in addition, maybe I could learn something else. And if we're into it for family history, there's always something else to come along to, uh, when you learn more documentary evidence, when that woman or man that was going after the adoption record we were talking about a few minutes ago, if they get something from that, there'll be something to follow up on, whether DNA would be the right tool. It might be, but uh, it might not be. It might be more documentary evidence they would need. But I think it's sort of like you probably wouldn't take your car to a mechanic that only his only tool was a hammer. And you probably wouldn't take your car to a mechanic whose only tool was a wrench. And it's sort of the same with, you know, genealogy. Uh, you're not going to find everything you need to know or might want to know about your family history from DNA testing. You're not going to find all of it from census records or any other particular record, but it's it, uh, as you get more skilled at it, it's choosing the right tool at the right time to to identify the next level that you need. Yes. Well, I have a question though, and this is something else on a kind of different wavelength, but how do you deal with, I mean, totally unexpected results? You mentioned the first cousin that you didn't know about, but how do you approach cousins, let's say, of a different ethnic background, or does it matter? And then the next uh, piece to that is should slavery ever be brought up? I, it can't be ignored in a lot of cases. And uh, But just to go back to my unknown first cousin, even within my uh, first cousins in my family, there was a lot of a different opinion as to what, whether we should try to figure out who's, how he belonged to the family. I had one cousin who was very adamant that to let sleeping dogs lie and was probably explained a little bit more graphically than that in one case. And he uh, said, alleged to me that all the other cousins agreed with him. Well, I knew that wasn't true because I was talking to all the other cousins as well. And in fact, several of them were willing to DNA test to see whether this could have been a half-sibling for some of them. It raises a whole lot of issues. Uh, you've mentioned the ethnicity end of it, that 
might be troubling to some people. There are other things we need to be sensitive to and situations when we discover really close uh, connections through DNA. And uh, one of them is uh, estate matters. If you had, if you were to discover that you did have a half sibling, which at least one of my cousins was concerned about in this case, uh, would this have had something to do with some of the property settlement or something of that from their parents who were now uh, dead and having to go back and renegotiate that and was sort of interested in DNA testing, but wanted to consult their lawyer bef- about that matter before they proceeded. So there are all kinds of uh, social and legal and other questions, but uh, One thing when I teach a class or talk to people about testing DNA, I said, or just doing genealogy research in general, are you sure you're ready to find out the information? And if you don't want to know, no, don't ask the question. Uh, uh, And a lot of us maybe think we're ready and we know, but then there's, you know, there's an emotional component. There's a, rational component in most of us and sometimes some of us have a hard time getting our emotional side and our rational side talking to each other let alone talking to cousins or other potential relatives and uh, United if you're doing DNA testing and genealogy in the United States and over any extended uh, period of generations you may come across all kinds of things that uh, you're going to have to sort out. And in so doing, hopefully we will remember that other people have feelings and they may not be identical to ours. And we need to be sensitive to that. But to know that many people, probably most in my experience, really are interested in exploring this and finding out. But some don't and some won't. And it gets even more dicey, perhaps, if we get a little farther from just family history and get into health-related issues where some people really don't want to know what they may have to face in 5, 10, or 15 years health-wise. And others think they want to know. It gets really tricky if they happen to be siblings, one one one, one the other. Because once you find out what applies to you, it applies to other members of your family. Uh, at least with DNA, it does. That's right. Now, there's a question coming out of the chat, and it relates to um, other than the different DNA testing sites. Do you, in particular, have a favorite DNA analytical tool, or what analytical tool would you recommend if one is trying to find relatives or ancestors? And they also bring up the value of chromosome mapping. Well, chromosome mapping is probably not what most people are going to do the first five minutes after they get their results back. But it's certainly <laughs> something to build up to. Uh, I give examples in uh, 
let's see, it would be probably chapter four of my book of different ways that you can begin to explore your results from the from each of the different three major companies. And for instance, one of the examples I give in there is I went into my late father-in-law's DNA and his autosomal results and looked to see who was the closest match that he had in the database that I didn't know anything about. I mean, I knew his first cousin and I knew his children and grandchildren and all those, but looked to see who was the individual that came, seemed to have the biggest match with him that was new to me. And then I looked around to see who did that person seem to match and came up with a little cluster of individuals. And uh, in this case, was fortunate enough to find something that I haven't completely gotten the answer to yet, but I happen to uh, know that you're headed west in about a week to Salt Lake City. And mm-hmm. uh, I am too. And while I'm out there, I'm going to see if I can't bring some closure to this particular thing. But I found where my uh, father-in-law had some ancestors back in the uh, early to mid-1800s in a city, uh, in a city, in a village, uh, where that uh, was about three and a half miles from where the ancestor of one of these other individuals, which we haven't found the exact connection with, which looked pretty good. And then I noticed that the spouse of that man who was born three and a half miles away was only born about a mile and a half from there. And that's back in Germany. And it's too big a coincidence for for me to leave alone. So when I get to Salt Lake City, I'm going to see what I can do to rattle those bones. And See if I can put something together. But, uh, right, right. That, that, <laughs> I can understand why you, know, you would want to do that. Wanna, yeah, and so, you know, it's just because I, I, I picked out my father-in-law's closest match that was not in the known family and developed a cluster of people, which it turned out was her daughter and her niece uh, were also good matches. And uh, then they had, a couple of them had worked on their trees to the point where they knew that where uh, the elder person in the group's grandmother had been born. And then I think we may be off to the races here, but, you know, I may be adding two and two and getting 17 to tell uh, the documentation all supports my thesis here. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, just as you you stated in the beginning, I mean, you do have to to I guess ask the question: Why are you testing? I mean, what is the what is your hypothesis? What are you what are you trying to to find? And once you ask that question, then what test is the most appropriate test to perhaps help you get the answer that you're looking for? Right. The, well, we're getting close. Go ahead. The Y chromosome test and the mitochondrial test are not good at all for fine-tuning relationships, but they're very good for reaching way back into the past. So a lot of times you have to combine 
uh, an autosomal test for fine-tuning some of the closer relationships with one of these others, uh, which I was uh, comparing with a rifle shot, sort of way back into time, and comparing the two, and whatever other documentary evidence you can find to uh, hopefully get some clarity on some of the questions. Right, right. Now, I I don't know if you gave us any DNA analytical tools as part of this question other than you you mentioned the the value of chromosome mapping. But any any other tools that you may recommend or we can find out about it in your your book? Well, there's sort of variations on that. Uh it one of the first things I try to do is to be willing to uh, send information to the matches about my family, or in my case, I sort of manage about the uh, DNA kits of about 20 extended family members, and each of them may have a very different pedigree chart because they're like my daughter-in-law's tree or this or that or something else. And so if if she gets a match, I have a, a list which uh, goes back several generations and has a, a surname and a locations index at the end to help them look through uh, her tree information or my tree information or my wife's tree information, whoever they're matching, ask them to take a look at it and ask them what they know about their family history already and does any of this look familiar to them, either the locations or the surnames. And uh, that can be the case no matter where you test. Some of that pedigree information ancestry will try to provide you with if uh, you go that route. But if you go the other two routes, uh, their family information is not as good, but their analytical tools of analyzing the, the DNA are much better. Okay. Well, Karen's kind of summed up what you just said. Uh, not so much about the analytical tools, but she said, you know, it seems like genealogical research is like the framework or the context. DNA perhaps supports or refutes it. What do you yep. think about that? I think that's a good summary. Uh, that's it's a good certainly summary. been my experience. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I re- mentioned, my very first exposure back in 2004, it refuted something. It also, yes. uh, you know, when I got my test results back, I had to ask myself some questions. Was I really a dowel? Because I didn't match mm. this dowel. And he was, mm-hmm. at that point, the only other dowel in the database. And mm-hmm. I came real close to matching some people with a, a surname of McDaniel and a guy by the name of Hardesty. So it made me think, you know, am I really a dowel? Am I really a Hardesty? Am I really a McDaniel? Or am I an alien from Mars or something? <laughs> of, of the matches I'm getting here. Uh, 
soon thereafter, uh, another uh, person who turned out to be a sixth cousin of mine, who was a Dow, also tested. And so I said, well, maybe I'm a Dow after all. But uh, the hardest in this mix probably is biologically a Dow. This is something that we've had to work out very gingerly over the last decade. And I think he's about ready to conclude that too, because we have discovered that he, his ancestors lived, well, in the 1790 census in North Carolina, only uh, three or four names removed in the census from a person who would have been uh, the brother of my direct line ancestor. And there were mm-hmm. several other dowels around within a mile or two who were uh, potential fathers as well. So. He has continued to match, the hardest he has continued to be a very close match with me as we've extended this farther and farther down and, uh, and we're sort of running out of alternative explanations for this. Yes, so, yes. And this is a, another a comment coming out of the chat. It says, you know, discussions about are you really a doll? Is perhaps something that could also be addressed when you get involved in the FTDNA surname project groups. Uh, and yep. basically, can you even say something about a, a surname uh, project group? What what does that sure. mean, and how can that be helpful to people? Well, usually, if you're going into DNA testing, started out very male focused because the Y chromosome test was the only one that was offered out of the gate and started in about 2000. The mitochondrial one came along and was became almost affordable to most of us about 2009. Uh, it was offered at a lower level before, but it, at a lower level, it wasn't particularly helpful, uh, genealogically speaking, because it was too vague to know that, oh, you have a 50% chance of matching somebody in the last 26 generations isn't too helpful to answering most genealogical questions. But then in 2010, 11, 12, we started getting autosomal testing and uh, doing all that. Now we've sort of gone full circle and uh, now there's tests called the big Y test, which instead of testing 12, 25, 37, 111 markers test 10 to 12 or 13 million locations on the Y chromosome. So we're starting to use, you asked me about haplogroups a little bit earlier, the SNPs from haplogroups, which is every time there's been a forking of that DNA from mitochondrial Eve or, or Y chromosome Adam down to the present, uh, there's, at that junction, some of our DNA is flowed one way, some another. And that tends to be pretty permanent. And uh, it's gone back to the Y chromosome. And unfortunately, on the female side of that only has about 16,559 possibilities for describing that journey all the way down from these to the present. But on the male side, there are many, many million possibilities for branches that were recorded and brought down to the, again. And the 
hap, the Y Haplo group matches surnames, and pretty soon we may have be able to trace the SNP flow all the way down into genealogical time. And what I would like to see coming out of some of our Haplo group uh, and uh, surname studies is to define DNA almost down to as specific as the coat of arms might have been back in the 17th century for some of our families. And so if we know that you have a given SNP, then we know, at least on your paternal side, uh, that we're very closely related, just based on an right. individual SNP. We're not there yet, right. but I'm dreaming. We're not, yes, we're not there yet, and for, for many of the listeners, we may be getting into advanced DNA. And some of the people are still at the point where they're trying to just really understand it in the basics. And so right. I just want to thank you so much because you have put together Next Gen Genealogy, the DNA Connection, and it does offer individuals more information than perhaps they have had. And so for that, I want to thank you and to encourage the listeners to go out and purchase Next Gen Genealogy, the DNA Connection by David R. Dow. And thank you so much for spending time with us tonight to share your knowledge about DNA and genealogy. Do you have well, any closing remarks before we... Oh, thank you well, so much, everyone. I just want to thank everyone. you for the opportunity. Thank and, you. Uh, don't hesitate to email me if, if any of your listeners want me to uh, raise the level of confusion even higher. <laughs> okay, and and also they can always look uh, look at your blog, Dr. Diggs. Perhaps there will be additional information that you they can learn from you, Dr. Digg digs up ancestors at uh, blog.ddoll.com. Well, I want everyone to remember your ancestors left footprints, and yes, even in your DNA. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and Afrogenia's Facebook pages. And also, remember to listen to the African Roots podcast tomorrow with Angela Walton Raji. Thank you so much, Victoria Massey, for helping out as co-host tonight. And again, David, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone.